What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, coronavirus cases ticking up, but so are the vaccine jabs. Dr. Scott Gottlieb on what we should and shouldn't be worried about. There's enough vaccine in the system and states should be allocating for the second dose. Getting back to America's basics, what it'll take to create a truly United States with professor, writer and happiness podcaster Arthur Brooks. We have a competition to see who's going to create more opportunity for Americans. And I think that that's actually what's going to happen in the next five years. Plus, President-elect Biden is headed for the White House, Teslas are headed to China, and Stellantis making a splash on the public markets. Stella! You know what that's from, you guys? You do. It's Tuesday, January 19th, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. We've got a huge week ahead. Uh, Let's tell you what's on the Squawk Planner, because this is a very big week. In Washington, it is also a very, very big week. President-elect Biden scheduled to be sworn in as president at noontime tomorrow. Chief of Staff Ron Klain saying that Biden is planning a 10-day blitz of executive actions. And uh, for that, I'm going to go over to Joe, who I think is going to go to Washington. Yes, to Elon. Elon Moy is going to, I don't know if she's got every executive action she's ready to go into, but she's going to have the latest uh, on the inauguration and, and everything surrounding uh, the inauguration. Um, the Biden team plan for a 10-day blitz. So we got that going for us. I, 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 I'm, I, whatever. I'm ready for it, Elon. You know, I, that's what presidents do. But, you know, I've got a little trepidation with some of it. But... Um, and elections have consequences, and it's coming. Keystone, that's going away. I mean, I, didn't, I don't know. Anyway, take yeah, it away. That's right, Joe. I think that over the next over the next few days, what we're going to see is just a real sort of divide and juxtaposition between some of the pomp and circumstance, and then some of the policies. So. Obviously, the inaugural ceremony is going to be dramatically scaled back. Uh, Today, we're going to see Biden leave Delaware and make his way down to D.C., though not by Amtrak because of the heightened security measures. Tonight, he will be at the Lincoln Memorial for a ceremony honoring those who have lost their lives to COVID-19. But in the midst of this pandemic, there's a real desire in the administration to be seen as hitting the ground running. And it's one of the reasons why we're going to see five of Biden's top nominees have their Senate confirmation hearings today. That includes Janet Yellen for Treasury Secretary, along with his picks for Director of National Intelligence, Homeland Security, Secretary of State and Defense Secretary. I got an early copy of Yellen's opening statement, and she does plan to make a forceful argument for that $1.9 trillion COVID rescue package that was outlined last week. She says, without further action, we risk a longer a more painful recession now and long-term scarring of the economy later. She also says that with interest rates at historic lows, 
The smartest thing we can do now is to act big. Now, as for that flurry of executive orders that Biden is planning within his first few days, many of them will reverse the decisions made by President Trump. The latest example came just last night um, on restricting travel from Europe and from Brazil. The Trump administration had said it planned to lift those restrictions on January 26th, though visitors would still have to provide a negative COVID test. Biden's spokesperson immediately pushed back on that, saying that the new administration would not lift the ban and instead she tweeted, with the pandemic worsening, the more contagious variants emerging around the world, this is not the time to be lifting restrictions on international travel. Biden is also planning other executive action on immigration, the Keystone Pipeline, the Paris Climate Accord, the World Health Organization. So the goal of the Biden administration is to show here that they're the ones who are serious about governing. Back to you guys. You know, it seems like every morning we come in and we talk about some new move that the Trump administration is making in, in the last days. And it, am, am I wrong, Elon, in thinking that that's a little different than what we would normally see from, from a lame duck administration? Or are we just paying more attention this time? Um, I think certainly there is always an attempt by an outgoing administration to put their final stamp on whatever their policy agenda might have been. Uh, I think that in this situation, I, what is so stark and dramatic is just how uh, how quickly those decisions can be reversed. I think that the Biden administration had all along said that they plan to undo many of the executive actions that Trump had put in place. And I think this also highlights the sort of volatility of executive order. You know, it used to be that you would legislate these things, right? And you wouldn't have to take these That's sort right. of unilateral steps in order to implement your agenda. Uh, now we're in an environment where Washington is so polarized that this is the the only sort of lever that presidents can use in order to enact the policy moves they want to see. It's been 12 years of a lot of executive orders. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why Biden is saying he wants his uh, COVID relief package to be uh, bipartisan and move through Congress uh, with support from both parties. We'll see if that's a potential reality at all. Elon, thank you very much. Great to see you. We're watching shares of Tesla as we do basically every day. The company has started delivering locally produced Model Y crossovers in China. Tesla built its $2 billion Shanghai plant in just under a year and delivered, started delivering, I should say, Model 3 vehicles produced there last year. Now, Tesla also plans to report fourth quarter earnings next week. Joe. And we are watching the shares of Stellantis in overseas trading. That's uh, the product of the $52 billion merger between Fiat, Chrysler and Peugeot. It was just finalized on Saturday. The combined company will also trade on the uh, NYSE under the ticker STELLA STLA. Stellantis. Stella. You know what that's from, you guys? You do. I don't need to tell you. Yes, yeah, streetcar named Desire. Would you have said it that way, do you think, or if you saw it? If you came across it, would you have said it that way? And I, I don't think you would have, would you, Andy? I no. couldn't help myself. I could not help myself. I saw STLA. Stellantis. I guess um, I thought I was taking that. Brando did uh, for, I thought I was taking that for some of the psoriasis that uh, Stellantis, didn't I? Don't you have... <laughs> Do you have a prescription for it's that? It's an interesting Matt? name. I was trying to figure huh? out, is it like Stella Artois and Atlantis? Where did they come up with this? Who the hell knows? Uh, you let the, you know, and how much did it cost? Some Matt, branding with, guy. With that right. crappy name. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, they you got know, their money's worth. I, They've I already made it, a big you know, deal it, about it. It's, it's a, I take it twice a day. Uh, and, and the itching, uh, stop, dry skin. Stellantis, try it. It's good. Ask your doctor. Andrew, 
Let's go. We're ready. <laughs> We're going to go to commercial. Maybe there's a Stellantis commercial. I don't know. Next on Squawk Pod, how precarious is our COVID vaccine supply? Dr. Scott Gottlieb. If J&J's vaccine does come to the market, perhaps sometime as early as March, that's going to be a game changer in terms of supply. We will not be supply constrained if that vaccine does make it through. We'll be right back. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. Here's Becky Quick. We haven't really talked much about COVID, but we are seeing these vaccinations continue to roll out. Cross your fingers on that. Getting close to a million vaccinations a day. My parents got vaccination appointments. Uh, my mom for February and my dad for March. So I'm looking forward to that. You Excellent. Know? Excellent. These are the things we keep waiting on. The, the, yeah. the, the more jabs, the better. I don't think about it. You know, if you're walking exactly. by and they say, hey, we got some in the bottom of this vial, go on in. Go on in and, and do it. Did you see that there were, they think thousands and thousands of doses have been thrown out because doctors have been afraid to give the extra doses, you know, the ones that are left at the bottom, or if somebody yeah. doesn't show up, they'd rather throw it out in some cases than, than actually be in a situation of getting totally accused of jumping the, the line. The screw-ups and, and the, you know, you, you just know, it's like Murphy's Law. I don't even want to know It was an NBC report about, that looked into yeah. it. Yeah. Give them to anybody. That's my thought, too. Few grim numbers. The United States has surpassed 400,000 deaths related to the COVID-19 outbreak. That's according to an NBC News tally. The country hit 300,000 deaths just over a month ago. Today marks 364 days since the U.S. confirmed its first case of the virus in Seattle. How much has changed in one year? President-elect Joe Biden's top health officials are confident the United States will have enough coronavirus vaccine doses to meet the incoming administration's goal of inoculating 100 million people in 100 days. Dr. Rochelle Walensky is Biden's pick to lead the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. We have looked carefully and we are uh, confident that we have enough vaccine uh, for the 100 million doses over the next 100 days. Um, That is what the president-elect has promised. It will be a hefty lift, but we have it in us to do that. Biden has vowed to place suppressing the virus as a top priority once he's sworn into office tomorrow. Last week, just on Friday, Biden laid out a five-step plan that includes expanding the number of vaccination sites across the U.S. You have my word. You will manage the hell out of this operation. Joining us right now is former FDA commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He currently serves on the boards of both Illumina and Pfizer. He's also a CNBC contributor. And Dr. Gottlieb, to, to what Meg's talking about, where we stand right now, especially this idea that there are 45,000 people in Florida who, according to the state's own data, are late for their second dosage. What, what would you say? Where, where do we stand? How are things going? Well, I don't have direct insight into how Florida is managing the distribution of the vaccine. There's enough vaccine in the system and states should be allocating for the second dose, both the federal government and the states. And there's going to be enough supply coming in the market that there should be enough to both provide additional first doses as well as provide for second doses. Um, I think we're on a good steady state right now in terms of vaccine production. 
About 30 million doses have been distributed to states. As of this Tuesday, there'll be another 15 million made available to the states. And 5 million doses have been ordered by the states but not yet shipped for a total of 50 million doses. And a little bit more than 10 million have actually been used at this point. So there is supply in the system. There's ways you can increase supply. Um, we can do more to try to increase production. We could do more to get efficiencies out of the fill finishing process, the process of actually putting the raw ingredient into vials. And so that's what the new incoming administration should be looking at, ways that they can work with manufacturers to try to get more production into the system. And the final point is, um, if J&J's vaccine does come to the market, and I have a lot of confidence in their ability to manufacture that in large quantities, if that vaccine does come to the market, perhaps sometime as early as March, that's going to be a game changer in terms of supply. We will not be supply constrained if that vaccine does make it through. And I, I think, you know, many of us are optimistic looking at the early data that it does look encouraging. You know, this, this is Monday morning quarterbacking, but we, were we right to give the states so much autonomy and, and not set up some sort of a federal system to see how this gets distributed? Because it is pretty frustrating when you we hear people in some states who are able to get uh, appointments, no problems, and people in others who are not. Yeah, well, we talked about this on this show many times, that it was going to feel unfair because the rules were going to be different from state to state, and people were going to have friends in some states that were able to get vaccinated while they were not. I, I do think that we should have had more uniform guidelines across the country, not left so much up to the states. I don't think we should have left so much up to ASIP either to, to set up the uh, guidelines on who should and shouldn't qualify for vaccination. And we also should have pushed more through um, federal distribution uh, points, including the big box stores and the pharmacies. The federal government could have distributed directly through Walgreens and CVS and Walmart and ShopRite and other big box stores. And that would have provided for you know, instantaneous access to a lot of people. You wouldn't have had to stand up new sites de novo. And most of those outlets have scheduling systems. They know how to do this. They have vaccinators on hand. They vaccinate in the flu season. And so the federal government could have distributed directly through those entities. It chose not to do that. Instead, it gave the, the stock to the states. And then the states made 50 individual decisions how they were going to allocate it within their states. And so I think it slowed things down in the beginning because most of the states had to set up new systems, new registration systems, new sites. And that took weeks to do. What now? Is it too late to switch gears and, and do what you had been advocating for more than a month? But with, with going to these big boxes, with going to the, the pharmacies that know how to do this, or is that going to slow things down once again if you change once you're this far down the road? No, I think what the incoming administration is doing is taking a sort of all the above approach where they're going to wrap around the existing system with more points of, um, of access for the vaccine. So remember, the states could have done this with a lot of advanced planning and some resources. I think the federal government largely froze them. When I was talking to governors before the vaccines were authorized and they asked them what their plans were for distribution, how they were going to prioritize vaccination, what I was hearing back from them on a bipartisan basis is we, we don't know. We're waiting for the federal government to tell us. We have some thinking. We don't know what we're going to be allowed to do. So I think the states really felt frozen by the federal government, waiting for the federal government to give them some guidance, recognizing that the federal government is going to try to play an important role here and an active role. Right now, I think what you could do very quickly is wrap around what exists. So you, talk, you hear the Biden administration talking about setting up new federally chartered sites in conjunction with the states. You hear them talking about distributing directly through some of the large pharmacies. So it's sort of an all-the-above approach, and then you see what's working. Final point is that 
you know, we've talked about access being the real challenge right now, and now we're talking about supply because we're sort of getting to a steady state of supply, and it's hard to increase the supply in the near term. I do think, and I've said this before, at some point demand is going to become an issue. Right now we're working through a 65 and over population where demand is very intense. There's going to be a lot of intense demand even in younger cohorts. But I think once we get to 100 million, maybe 120 million vaccines, the demand is going to get soft. This year, 120 million people got vaccinated for flu adults. It was an all-time record. Those were people who were worried about getting COVID, going out and getting flu vaccines. That may be the universe of people who really have significant demand for a COVID vaccine. And so I think we need to also, as we do this, work on the demand side of this equation. We can't lose sight of that and just take for granted that everyone wants this vaccine. The Biden administration is seeking $1.9 trillion of that. I think there's $20 billion that they've earmarked for specifically um, this vaccination programs. I can't see too many people arguing about spending $20 billion on trying to get the vaccine program up and running, but it's part of a much bigger package that's going to take a long time to work its way through Congress. If it gets there eventually, is it going to be too late for that $20 billion? What would you do with that if you had it today? Yeah, I don't think it's going to really impact things in the near term. I I think this is kind of baked. And what we can do is push the vaccine out through um, avenues that are already operating. And that's why I've been advocating the big box stores, places like Walmart, like Walgreens, like ShopRite, because they're already brick and mortar facilities that have the capacity to, to take on this task. You know, that money, I think, could be important to get in place a more coherent, better system as we head into the fall. And we may need to continue to be vaccinating in the fall as we head into the fall and the winter of, of this year uh, and face more risk from COVID. The other thing I think we should be doing is focusing on how we increase production capacity in this country, how we build more resiliency into the manufacturing. That's going to take months to do. But if we get started on that right now, again, that could pay dividends and provide us an insurance policy as we head into the fall. Because right now, you know, this whole thing is sort of priced for perfection, if you will. I mean, this, the, all of our expectations are predicated on the belief that there will be no disruptions, that everything's going to work well with the manufacturing. And I have confidence it will, um, but there's risk. And so we need, we need to have a plan B. We need to have more capacity in the system to manufacture these vaccines at scale. That's something we should have been doing months ago, um, but there's, it's never too late, really, to invest in that. Dr. Gottlieb, thank you for your time. It's good to see you, and we will check in with you again soon. Thanks a lot. Coming up on Squawk Pod, agreeing to disagree. People are going to disagree with you. I don't know how you could be proud of that. I don't know how anybody could be proud of that. Arthur's here to talk. Go ahead. Okay. (laughs) Arthur Brooks, writer for The Atlantic, Harvard professor, and podcaster, says we can find common ground. If you're conservative like Joe and me, if you're liberals, you basically have to look to keep your own house in order. Now, what we're doing in this country is we look at the other side and say, those guys got to get it together. That won't work. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, 
and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash credit card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash credit card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Becky Quick and Joe Kernan uh, on a Tuesday morning, not a Monday morning, but a Tuesday morning. Social media platform Parler has resurfaced. The company's website is now back online, thanks in part to support from a Russian-owned technology company. Amazon stopped providing its cloud hosting services after the deadly riots at the U.S. Capitol. Speaking over the weekend, Parler's CEO said that he is confident the site will be fully up by the end of the month. Its app remains banned from the Google and Apple app stores. Joe? Let's welcome uh, Arthur Brooks, AEI President Emeritus, who is with Harvard University. We've got to talk about hey, that. Joe? He, write, he writes a, uh, a biweekly column for The Atlantic, How to Build a Life, uh, and hosts a podcast, The Art of Happiness, with Arthur Brooks. Arthur, thanks for joining us. So were you accepted immediately when you went? Do they know who you are? At, at Harvard, <laughs> you don't hang around in Cambridge. You're on the other side. Is that where you are in, in, in actually in well, Boston? Or? I'm, I'm both. I'm actually jointly appointed to the Kennedy School and at the Business School. And so I'm, you know, I'm 50-50 between the two places. So, yeah, both sides of the river. And so far, so good, I have to say. I mean, perhaps we're not in very high concentration up there as center-right folks. But, uh, no, it's great. It's great. They're really nice. That's excellent. That's excellent. They, they probably, you know, they kind of talk among themselves, say, well, he's, you know, he's like that. But uh, anyway, um, <laughs> it, we, we, go, we were talking about all of the, what you've talked about when you've come on recently, yeah. how we need to eventually bring this, this back to some extent. Is it possible to bring back any type of uh, uh, civility in, in, in public or private life with, when social media is just so... Uh, insidious and, and I don't know. I, I, is it the the politicians we've had that caused it, or, or, or is it the the environment and the all, all the the you know the proliferation of all these social media sites, Arthur? How are we going to do it? I think that we can. I think there's a lot of uh, there's a huge scope for opportunity. So what happens is coming. And, and let, let me back up a little bit. Going back to the financial crisis, this is a very predictable thing where you have a lot of coming out of a financial crisis, ordinarily you have 10 to 15 years of really uneven growth. Where, and there's not a macroeconomist on the planet that knows how to solve this. You've got a Milton Friedman as president of the United States, which would be great. And, and, and still, you would have 80% of the economic growth 10 years out of a financial crisis going to 20% of the population. And that leads to populism and polarization and kind of a fear-based politics where both sides say, somebody's got your stuff and I'm going to get it back. Well, you know, the competition in politics is really important in a democracy. Iron sharpens iron. But if the competition is set to say the other side is evil, rich people, bankers, immigrants, foreigners, whatever, the other is going to take your stuff and I'm going to protect you, that's a bad competition. We need to shift the competition toward we have a competition to see who is going to create more opportunity for Americans. And I think that that's actually what's going to happen in the next five years. Republicans are going to try to do that through more economic growth and less fear of barriers, more entrepreneurship, and the, and the left through better safety nets, et cetera. And that's a virtuous competition. That's where I, I think we need to get. That will solve our problems. It's not just social media either. If you watch Fox News uh, and then you watch CNN and if you watch them side by side, it, it's pretty staggering, the yeah. approach. I mean, well, they're, they're, 
Sure. No, they're drafting behind this like unvirtuous competition. The media is wants to make money. I mean, it's, it's capitalism. It makes perfect sense. I understand it. I get it. I'm sympathetic to it, as a matter of fact. But when they basically see all these incentives to fire up these passions of fear, fear and hatred, as opposed to you know love and opportunity, which is what we actually need, you're going to get this stuff, this polarization in the media. Look, I, look, you and I both know. Everybody should be tuned to CNBC all the time. That's the way to go. But until we actually have politicians and leaders that are trying to lead us in a better direction, the media is going to be following behind these bad directions. Uh, do you think that President Biden is going to be a uniter from, from the indications that you're getting so far, the Vice President Harris? It's hard to say. You know, it, uh, President, Vice President Biden, when he was Vice President of the United States, certainly had that impulse, and he wants to. The problem is that he's surrounded by a lot of people that are living in the past decade, which is pretty normal as well. So the key thing is going to be who's going to win in the Democratic Party. Is the Democratic Party going to go rail to rail like the Republican Party did and be polarizing and populist and say basically evil people have your stuff and I'm going to protect you? Or are we going to move back to a more of an opportunity culture? Time will tell. Hey, Arthur, I wanted to talk to you about two things. One is, and I, I don't, I mean, this has become political. I don't think that there's an equivalency here. And look, we can say all sorts of things about CNN. But I think when you look at what Fox was doing, especially in these past couple of months, they were lying to the public. And I think, as, as Mitt Romney said uh, very directly uh, that evening uh, after the attacks, the best way to respect the public is to tell them the truth. The best way we can show respect for the voters who are upset is by telling them the truth. And so I think that we do ourselves a disservice when we talk about these things in an equivalent way, don't you think? Well, I think that the, the biggest problem that we have, look, if the president of the United States is a Republican, there's a populist conservatives type Republican, then what you're going to see is more power from forces of media that have, you know, the political forces in tow. Now, what you're going to actually see is when the Democrats are in charge, if they behave just as badly as President Trump did, which would be terrible, that you're actually going to see ascendant the forces in left wing media that can be just as powerful as as what we saw in the last five years. So, you know, I, there, there's equivalency in intent, if not in actual power, to be sure. And what we all have to do, no matter what we believe, look, if you're conservative like Joe and me, if you're liberals, you basically have to look to keep your own house in order. You basically have to hold your own side to a higher standard. Now, what we're doing in this country is we look at the other side and say, those guys got to get it together. That won't work. A liberal, you know, criticizing a conservative, that gets nothing done. Liberals should say liberals have to be more virtuous and better and conservatives need to do the same thing. That will actually give us progress. Arthur, what, what do you make of what's happened with Parler? Uh, and, and I wanted to make an earlier point that the fact that now this, this site is effectively operating on a, a, a Russian-backed uh, website or, or at least a, a Russian-backed service, what that says about what's happening here. Interestingly, um, you know, People will still be able to get access to this site. It's, it just won't be available maybe through the app store. But if you go onto the web, you'll be able to get there. The question is whether this is effectively, you know, AWS effectively getting rid of Parler just pushes it sort of down the stack, if you will. But it'll still very much be available. Are you on Parler, for example? No. 
No, I, I, I don't know very much about Parlin at all, but I think it's pretty interesting to show how the, the proliferation of different, you know, how worldwide capitalism has actually eviscerated the ability of both governments and very large corporations to, to deplatform in a meaningful way. I think that's one of the big lessons that we've got here. And so if you push somebody out of the mainstream, they will still exist, but not in the mainstream. What does that actually do to the medium? Does it make it worse? I mean, you got to think that maybe it does actually, right? Don't you think? I don't know how we get anywhere, uh, Andrew and, and Arthur, when, when one side just decides unequivocally that, that the other side is, is always telling lies. And, and when one side can decide what's an equivalent and what isn't. I saw stuff on CNN for four years that, that I would characterize as being not even close to the truth on, on a lot of different issues. So to just arbitrarily say Fox is always lying, CNN at least brings you facts, that's part of the whole divide that we're in right now, Andrew. I mean, that, that's why the country is so divided. People, and, and it's not alternative facts, it's just people have differing opinions. People have differing opinions uh, about a look, lot of things. And there, look, there are I times saw, when I, I, I saw the only place I got any truth was Fox at, at points in the last four years. And I watched things happen on Joe, CNN with, with the dossier or with absolute collusion that I was like, you've got to be kidding me. So who's right about who Joe, has the facts saw, and who I saw, doesn't? And who can, Joe, you I can't saw protests over the summer. You can't decide. I saw protests over the summer, some of which were co-opted by looters. But I have never okay. seen. I have. I have never seen. Uh, this the, is the, why the we're divided. The liberal Andrew. or Democratic you, Party calling for, for effectively opinion. an insurrection. I don't. I don't know how you could be proud of that. Okay. I don't know how you could be. I don't know how anybody I'm could be proud of that of on any, any of that. side. <laughs> okay. It's just that that's Arthur. But, but that's where it came how, from, how by the way. How does it come? That's where it came from. Okay. What do That's we do, where the, the lies were told on a network to a group of people who, who, who then went to the Capitol and did things that we all witnessed. Fox. I don't work for it's Fox. It's impossible to defend in any way. There's bias across the board all over the place. Look, we have a huge problem when people are basically building their filter bubbles around looking for news networks and social media sites that tell them that they're right and the other side is evil and stupid. Right. Forget about, you know, right now, I mean, just arc that whole thing right now about who's lying and who's not lying. I'm against lying. We're all against lying. But the biggest problem is if any one of us wants to be more informed and better, there are a couple of things that we need to do. Number one is we need to be paying less attention to politics. Politics has become an entertainment industry in this country. And not only that, federal politics, national politics. Nobody has the slightest idea who's winning the school board election in their town. But they have they, you know, everything that's going on with the most you know, minute details with the president of the United States and the Congress, which actually touches their lives less. And they're filtering it through their, the, you know, their Facebook friends and their feed on Twitter and, and, and the news network that they choose to look at that tells them that they're right and the other side is evil. Until we actually start getting away from that and paying attention to things that really matter for our lives, like our families and our faith and our community, until we start paying attention to the things that matter and less on the, on the political entertainment industry, which is all about outrage and firing us up and making money, by the way, we're the product here. We're the ones being used when you hate somebody's profiting in media or politics, social media. And until we get away from that, this country is just not going to heal. It's not going to get better. So this is a happiness prescription every bit as much as it is one of political reconciliation and progress. So do you ever, you know, I, I, you've been on before. What was your last yeah. book or something? It was just the title was like terrible. It was love like, your uh, enemies, man. I mean, it was yeah. love your enemies. You, you're optimistic. Not- 
We're going. We're, we're yeah, spinning our wheels. Optimistic. We're going nowhere because uh, I'm not feeling. We've the done love. it before, Joe. Joe, we've done it before. This country has done it before, and what it requires is aspirational leadership. Let, just as a as a as a quick prescription to this, politicians can heal a lot of these divides if they start talking about the American quasi religion of self improvement and opportunity and entrepreneurship. If we actually get back to the idea that Americans can be aspirational, can lift the, each other up. And the only competition that they're engaged in politically is seeing who's going to create a greater ecosystem of opportunity than the other side. That actually will heal this divide. You know, we see this at key times. After the turn of the 19th century, there was a huge amount of political uh, populism and polarization and bitterness. Everybody was a Donald Trump-like nefarious political character coming through American politics. And then after the turn of the century, what, what did you see? You had a change in culture where there was a self-improvement culture that became ascendant. And by the way, that made America the country that we actually know it, it, it today. That was basically Reagan's America started in about the year 1900. And that culture comes, and it usually comes after these really bad times because somebody sees a market opportunity to bring it. So let's Let's bring it, man, and let's start it on Squawk Box, the Opportunity Network, the Opportunity Show. <laughs> All right. Well, Arthur, thank you. We appreciate it. Thank and you. Uh, we, we'll, we'll aim high. We'll aim high. We'll aspire uh, to some of your ideals. Absolutely. All right. See you yeah. later. Thanks. Back. Let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. I urge you, Arthur. We're going to preach it. And that's Squawk Pod. Thanks for listening to this podcast. On our rundown tomorrow, January 20th, Inauguration Day, a new administration begins. President-elect Joe Biden will have a lot on his plate. We'll hear from investor Leon Cooperman. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern and subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.